You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When my father was dying from his brain tumor, I realized that I had never had a conversation with him about anything spiritual. He was a scientist, and while he was proud of my success as a writer, he never expressed any real interest in the kinds of things I was thinking about. I was reluctant to engage him in too much discussion, knowing that he was not interested, and that seemed fine with him. When it became clear that his malignant brain tumor was inoperable, however, and that his days were severely numbered, I began to wonder if I shouldn't try to talk to him about what I had learned from Buddhism. This was a challenge, not because of his tumor, which was deep in the right side of his brain and had not affected his cognitive abilities, but because I needed to find a way of talking to him in plain language, without recourse to concepts he did not believe in. I called him on the phone from my office, not knowing that several days later he would slip into a coma from which he would never emerge, an unintentional infection from a brain biopsy several weeks previously, taking its iatrogenic toll. As I mentioned at the beginning of this book, my father, although a physician, successfully avoided the subject of his own mortality for much of his life. This is not an uncommon strategy for dealing with death, and there are many sutras in the Buddhist canon that show the Buddha confronting it with whatever persuasiveness he can muster. My father already had the tumor in his head. He had worked until he was 84, until he got lost one day driving the same 10-minute route home from work that he had taken for the past 40 years. The tumor was already inside his brain. As he was not used to facing a challenge he could not overcome with his intelligence, there was an air of resignation hovering over this, our last conversation. Do you know the feeling of yourself deep inside that hasn't really changed since you were a boy, I began? The way you felt the same to yourself as a young man in middle age and even now? My father voiced his assent. I was trying to summon the place of intrinsic relational knowing for him. It is there in our own subjectivity, although it is difficult to describe. We know ourselves from the inside. We have an intuitive feel for ourselves that is outside thought and we relate to other people, indeed to the world, from this place. Most of the time in our active and harried lives, we gloss right over it, but it is there in the background and we return to it in our private, unscripted moments, when listening to music, taking a walk, or going to sleep, for example. In my mind, I was remembering one of my Buddhist teachers asking me to find what, not who, was knowing the sounds I was hearing when I was meditating. Can you find what is knowing, he would often question, as I turned my attention to the sounds of the meditation hall. The very effort to find what is knowing, although it was impossible to find, opened up a peaceful oasis of calm awareness in which I learned to abide. Even though we can't find what is knowing, knowing is there, my teacher would say. This affirmation was a traditional Buddhist way of bringing implicit relational knowing into explicit awareness. Knowing is there. It was impossible to refute. My father, as best as I could gather, seemed to understand what I was getting at. It's kind of transparent, that feeling, I went on. 
You know what it is, but it's hard to put your finger on it. You can just relax your mind into that space, though. The body comes apart, but you can rest in who you've always been. Death is like taking off a tight shoe, I wanted to tell him, but I wasn't sure he would believe me if I went that far in the conversation. Yet I thought, with his scientist mind, he might just sense the possibility of investigating what I was suggesting. If the Buddha was to be believed, there was a place of lucidity from which even dying could be observed. Okay, darling, I'll try, he replied. I wondered for an instant if he was being patronizing, but decided he was not. He often called me darling, and I was glad for it, in the end. Mark Epstein, M.D., is a practicing psychiatrist and the author of Thoughts Without a Thinker and Psychotherapy Without the Self. His new book is The Trauma of Everyday Life. Thank you for joining me, Mark. It's my pleasure. Mark, this is an interesting book. It's a literary push-me-pull-you in which you use Buddhism to investigate psychiatry and psychiatry to investigate the life of the Buddha and both of them to investigate yourself and your uh, patients. (laughs) Talk about the concept of and creating this book. When and where and how did this start? Well, I, I was actually interested in exploring the notions of both non-attachment, the way the Buddhists talk about it, and attachment, the way the psychotherapists talk about it. Um, uh, There's a whole uh, aspect of psychological theory now called attachment theory, which is about how important it is for an infant to bond with the mother or father, whoever the caregiver is. And we know that those early attachments are very important for our later grown-up attachments. It's hard to have a decent relationship if those early relationships are fraught. From the Buddhist side, you know, the Buddha abandoned his wife and young child when he was 29 years old to seek his enlightenment in the forest. And uh, this notion of non-attachment in Buddhism always made me wonder, is that what we're really supposed to be doing, leaving our families in order to seek enlightenment? That that couldn't be right. So I I was trying to reconcile um, the importance of attachment, the way we think about it in therapy, and the importance of non-attachment, the way the Buddha actually taught it. And then I realized that trauma was actually the linking concept because if there's malattunement in early life, meaning a kind of what's now called developmental or relational trauma in early life, then people carry that with them. They have difficulty with their emotional experience. They have what I sometimes call um, uh, primitive agonies that they're carrying with them. And uh, if there's trauma in later life, the, um, uh, the, the effort of the ego or of the self is uh, to not fragment. So it pushes away any feelings that are too difficult to bear and goes on in a kind of limited capacity. Uh, In order to really understand what the Buddha taught by non-attachment, we have to be able to experience ourselves in a complete way, including all of the feelings that we might wish are not there. So um, uh, I began to think about trauma as an important concept and then realized that the Buddha lost his mother when he was just a week old, and that no one had ever made very much of that fact, even though it's well-known among students of Buddhism. And I decided that as a uh, psychotherapist, as a psychiatrist, uh, that maybe I could make something of that. This is such an interesting book because 
as a book, it is revelatory to us as the reader. readers. It engages us. But it's also a book that came from your reading of books. And uh, a big part, what plays a big part in this book, from what I, when I read this, is I think he had to read all this Buddhist uh, material. And, and more importantly, what your discovery came from an earlier translation in an earlier language of the Buddha's writing. So I'd like you to talk about doing that kind of literary investigation that led to this book. Well, I, I can tell you one story about that that I actually didn't put in the book because I, I thought it would sound too hokey, but I'll, I'll take a chance and tell you. Um, I, was, uh, I was on a silent, uh, a silent retreat, which I try to do uh, uh, at least once a year for a week. So it's a, it's a week of mindfulness where you basically don't talk to anyone and you're trying to be present moment to moment with your own experience, the way the Buddha taught. And the place that I go is in, uh, in central Massachusetts, a place called the Forest Refuge. And they do have a small library there. Even though you're not supposed to read, they have a library there. And I, and I would go in every day around 7 o'clock to the library, uh, and I'd be the only one there. And uh, the, it's a limited library, but they have all of the Buddhist uh, uh, texts there, all of the sutras. And the Buddhist texts are as voluminous as the works of Freud. They take up an entire huge shelf. It's like the Encyclopedia Britannica or something, you know. And uh, I would go in and uh, pull down one book at random and then open the book at random and, and read whatever it was. And I, and I would look to see if there was any kind of uh, teaching for me that would be useful in my retreat. And some of the stories in the book come from, uh, you know, opening at random, et cetera. But when I first started to think about this idea of the Buddha's loss of his mother and did that have meaning, was it there for a reason in our 20th, 21st century, you know, and could I make something of it? The first book that I pulled down randomly, I then opened randomly, and there's only one page, one paragraph in all of this Encyclopedia Britannica that talks about the Buddha's loss of the mother, and I opened to it. Um, so I, I was like, oh no, I guess I really do have to write about this. And, um, in that, in that, uh, page, on that page, the traditional Buddhist explanation for the loss of his mother is given, which is, oh, this is just what happens to every Buddha, uh, cause in every age a Buddha comes. And, uh, they said if, if uh, she were to live and then the Buddha had to leave his family when he was 29, it would be too much for her and it would break her heart. Um, so they take her out early so as to spare her the, uh, the pain of losing him later. Uh, so that got me curious, you know, had, had, anyone, uh, had anyone over the centuries of, uh, of Buddhist philosophy, 2,500 years, uh, written about it? And I started to read uh, various, not, not just uh, Buddhist, early Buddhist sutras, but the Mahayana texts and the Tibetan texts. Where could I find... Um, uh, some kind of reference to it. And I found an early biography of the Buddha written by Ashvagosa in the second or third century, written in Sanskrit, and it had been newly translated into English. And one stanza, it's a beautiful Sanskrit epic poem, and the Sanskrit scholars say it's a, you know, that the, the actual language is very beautiful. I, I could only read it in translation. But there's one one stanza where it says basically that the Buddha's mother, whose name was Maya, 
could not stand the bliss that she felt when she was engaged with her baby. The bliss was too much to bear, and so she had to leave her human body and assume a bliss body, like a goddess's body, in a heaven realm where she could handle the feelings that her love for her glowing infant uh, were creating in him. Um, so there's no talk about what that might have done to the baby, but, uh, but they describe uh, uh, very much the conflict that the mother felt, you know, too much joy. And so I, uh, through the book, I returned to that because the, the Buddha, as we know, was obsessed with suffering, maybe partially because he lost his mother early on, but his real breakthrough came when he allowed himself to experience joy again. And that, that's the thing that people don't necessarily understand about Buddhism, that while it talks about trauma and it, it uh, declares the reality of suffering, it's actually about discovering the joy that we're capable of sustaining ourselves. I, for me, one of the things I find so interesting is the sense of paradox and embracing these opposing opposites that runs through yeah. Buddhism and also, uh, to a certain degree, through modern psychiatry. Yes. And I think this is a very—it's so interesting to as the way you lay this out in the book. I'd like you to talk about— uh, what you kind of begin the book with is this idea of realistic view because you found yourself found a, a, a patient who had received a terrible diagnosis and and his his response to this was this diagnosis is a fact isn't that not yes well I, I had a long-term patient still have this patient who I've seen for many years he's about my age we we have uh, what has become a real friendship although I'm still the therapist and he's still the patient uh, but after after we already knew each other very well, he, uh, out of the blue, was diagnosed with a rare uh, bone blood cancer called multiple myeloma, which can kill you. It, uh, it, you can also hover, you know, kind of just short of the diagnosis uh, where your your body is trying to fend off what's happening. And he was kind of in that state. And he came in to me one day and told me that he'd been given this diagnosis and had explained certain symptoms that he'd been uh, trying, to, uh, trying to understand. And my first response was as more as a friend was like, oh, you know, like, I'm so sorry, poor you kind of thing. And he stopped me and said, you know, look, I can get that from other people. I really don't need that from you. Uh, I'm looking for something else. You must be able to give me something else, you know? And he was looking for the Buddhist wisdom that he was hoping I actually had. Um, and he said to me, look, this illness is a fact, isn't it? And uh, once he said that, I could then come from what I had learned from my study of Buddhism, the essence of which is it, it's not so important what you're feeling or what's happening to you or what you're experiencing. It's how you relate to it that matters. That what, what we have a little bit of control over is how we meet or how we relate to whatever befalls us. We, do, we can't really control everything in, in our lives. To some degree, we try and we're successful, but illness, old age, accident, separation, loss traumas of all kinds, big and small, are going to happen. And uh, we can learn how to relate to them without the normal kind of fear that uh, is our first response. It's interesting that <clears throat> what you say is that uh, a 
trauma was the importance of trauma in Buddhism was overlooked in the rush towards inner peace that Buddha promises. And I'd like you to talk about the importance of trauma and how that contrasts with the importance, how that contributes to, essentially, the the inner peace. Well, just going back for the moment to what you started out with a little while ago, the balance between light and dark, um, these two opposing forces, and how important it is to be able to be open to both sides of that kind of polarity. Sometimes in Western psychoanalytic, psychotherapy, there's a real focus on the dark spots. You know, that's, what, that's a famous line from Freud. I focus all of my artificial blindness on one dark spot, you know? And Freud wasn't afraid of talking about the destructive and libidinal, you know, sexual underside of things. Uh, sometimes on the Eastern side, on the Buddhist side, there's an avoidance of the darkness in the uh, attempt to embrace the joy and the light and so on. And we see that uh, sometimes between the East Coast and the West Coast even. You know, in New York, you, you still uh, are going to be talking about the darkness, but on the West Coast, it's mu- much more likely that you're talking about the light. But uh, my idea um, uh, that I try to um, explain in the book is that if we're unwilling to face the difficult feelings that come from both the big and little traumas of life, that that restricts us emotionally, that uh, when we're fending off the darkness, that also in some way stops us from uh, embracing the kindness and the empathy and the compassion that we're capable of if we're soldiering on in a limited way, afraid of our own suffering, then we're not going to be very open to the suffering of of others. And if we're not open to the suffering of others and to some degree to our own, then our hearts are going to stay closed and uh, and we'll be restricted uh, in our our pursuit of the kind of inner peace. You know, real inner peace comes from an ability to feel compassion for one's own situation and for others. You bring us these very complicated concepts, and they seem very simple as they unfold in this book. And this book is, is itself is a very complex piece of machinery. There's portions that you're writing as yourself. There's excerpts from your patient sessions. You quote a lot of authors, Buddhists and psychiatrists both. Um, I'd like you to talk about the literary task of architecting this and putting it together so that each piece, and there are several pieces that you put together, is whole. And those pieces also take us through the arc to this endpoint uh, where we have a much better understanding of why uh, embracing and, and trauma is a necessary part of a healthy life. Well, I, 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 it's too bad that it's necessary, but it seems to be an inevitable part of a healthy life. So we do have to deal with it one way or another. Um, in terms of the writing, uh, I wrote my first book, which was called Thoughts Without a Thinker, almost 20 years ago. And my editor at that time really wanted me to write about my patients. She wanted more, give me more case material and so on. And I was reluctant to be like, listening to my patients with an eye to ripping off their stories so I could put them in my book. I I felt like that was an intrusion into the therapy 
um, a, a relationship, which was sacred in a way to me. So um, I do have some of my patients uh, in here nonetheless, but I decided at that point to try to make my own experience, my major case study and all of my writing, because if the understanding uh, from either the Buddhist side or the psychodynamic side, if the understanding was real, I thought, I should be able to put words on it. So that, that's been my attempt in my writing, is to mine my own experience to the extent that I can uh, and to see if it's relevant to other people. So I, I tried in this book, there, there, there are um, multiple uh, strands that I'm braiding together in the book. And uh, one major strand is my own experience grappling with my own uh, uh, unacknowledged traumas uh, that I that I try to bring out in various ways, and I run that through the book. And uh, another strand, as we've been talking about already, is uh, this attempt at writing a kind of psychobiography of the Buddha, much as maybe Eric Erickson tried to do for Gandhi or for Luther. Uh, I tried to take the psychoanalytic perspective and apply it to what we know about the Buddha's life, because the Buddha was a real person, so it said, and uh, many of the details of his life are known. And, uh, and then uh, I also, uh, because I became interested in trauma and the ubiquity of trauma and in how both the uh, psychodynamic world and the Buddhist world actually are talking about how to deal with trauma, I tried to find uh, um, uh, scholars and therapists who had something interesting to say about trauma uh, that spoke to me, and I, I tried to weave their uh, wisdom into the book also. And then, then my effort was to make something that was actually readable uh, out of all of that, which, uh, which took me a long time. One of the uh, scholars you quote through the book is D.W. Winnicott. Yeah. And his understanding of the early mother-child relationship is critical to your understanding of Buddha's trauma, early trauma. Yeah. So I'd like you to talk about who he was and how that applies to Buddha and using Winnicott mm -hmm. to investigate Buddha who and Buddha's own thrust was to investigate yourself. That's right. Well, he's been a huge influence on me, Winnicott has. Uh, all of my books uh, have a lot of Winnicott. The the book, uh, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, uh, that title is really stolen from Winnicott. Um, he was a, a pediatrician and then a child analyst who lived in London, lived and worked in London, mostly in the 40s and the 50s. And he was a huge proponent of a mother's natural instincts at a time when the medical profession was questioning a mother's instincts and was trying to tell mothers, you know, how best to raise their children. So he was a, he was a big influence, actually, on Benjamin Spock. His first books, Benjamin Spock, wrote the introductions for. So he was, all, he was about promoting breastfeeding when the medical profession said no. Uh, he was about mothers uh, trusting their own uh, instincts toward their children. And he's the one who coined the phrase, a good enough mother. And we might today say a good enough parent, uh, be because he was um, uh, interested in the middle stance that a mother naturally finds between being too intrusive or too abandoning. He said you could mess up your child either way, 
and but that a, a parent naturally tries to find uh, a um, a way of relating in which the child's difficult feelings are held in the largest sense of being held, but um, uh, where the child can also be left alone, knowing that the parent is maybe in the next room, sewing, Winnicott would say, or getting dinner ready or something. So the child knows that the parent is there as a kind of auxiliary ego, you know, in the next room, and that leaves the child free to play, to explore their own minds. Uh, Winnicott thought that was the beginning of creative expression, that... Um, uh, that that good enough parenting that allows the capacity to be alone. So uh, I try to use Winnicott's advice to mothers about how to pay attention to their babies to also illuminate the Buddha's advice to all of us uh, as to how to pay attention to our minds because in meditation we're in a similar relationship to our minds that a mother is in to their baby. We have to learn how not to be too interfering and how not to be too abandoning, you know, but to stay with even what's difficult uh, without being too reactive and frightening ourselves. And this is what you call the holding space. And I, I think this is a really interesting concept on both sides of the equation. Yeah. Well, I, I loved reading Winnicott about creating a holding space or a holding environment because he talked about how holding is not just physical holding, but holding is also mental and emotional, that a, a child before the age of three has very intense feelings, very intense emotional experiences, very intense anxieties, but they don't have language to put on it. They don't have what we call second-order processing to help them understand what's happening. They're totally dependent on the parent to sense what they're feeling and to pick it up and hold it and then feed it back to them in a, in a more intelligible way, the way a parent will say, you know, oh, you're fussing, you must be hungry, maybe you're tired, let me help you with this, it's not so bad, it's going to be okay. You know, there's a kind of teaching there that's going on about emotional experience that we don't have to be terrified even of our own anxieties. And that kind of holding environment, I, I think the Buddha was also teaching that we have a kind of second chance in meditation to uh, treat ourselves not quite like a baby, but to access the parental qualities that are inherent to our minds so that we learn how to tolerate ourselves, how to make room for ourselves, how to hold our own experience, you know, even the darkness. One of the things you say about uh, trauma that I thought was really interesting was that there's no place in memory for it. And, and I thought that was a really fascinating insight. Yeah, well, the thing about trauma is that it... Um, it's so intense, and the feelings that are aroused are immediately felt to be unbearable, that they get shunted to a part of the brain or a part of the mind where there's, there's no explicit access. There's no access through words. It's like the way the body workers talk, you know, that the feelings are stuck in the body somewhere. That, that's what it's like. And then when something happens, either at night, when the ego is shut down and the dream life is active, or when something comes in the emotional landscape or the physical landscape that reminds that hidden part of the brain 
that reminds them of the traumatic feelings, the, those, feelings those feelings will come rushing out and take you over without you really knowing what's happening and make you act in ways that you wouldn't if you had your judgment about you. So there's like a famous song, you know, my mind has a mind of its own, takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone. That's the kind of uh, 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 traumatic residue that makes us act in ways that can make us feel ashamed. You have a really striking piece of writing in here where you describe this happening to you when you discover an old uh, videotape. I thought that was really a remarkable piece of work. Well, that, that was just a fortuitous... A uh, thing that happened where I was cleaning out my bookshelves and found an old videotape sitting behind a bunch of books, and I, I didn't know what it was. Uh, I saw it, my own writing on the, uh, on the case, but um, I still had a VCR uh, at that time, and I put the, put the tape in and saw myself from uh, 20, 25 years before when my wife had just had our first daughter, and she was nursing the daughter. We were, we were visiting friends. And uh, suddenly I saw myself acting in a way on the videotape, like uh, grabbing this little transitional object. We called it a wiggle worm, grabbing this wiggle worm that my wife was delicately holding in front of my baby daughter, you know. And I grabbed it and started jumping around, like thinking I was being funny, but in fact scaring everybody. And um, uh, with the the 20-year distance, I, I could see... Uh, aspects of what I was acting out, what I was enacting, that I'm sure I was not aware of at the time. So I tried to talk about that in the book. You also give us a fascinating uh, vision of the Buddha's life. And I I, I think that this is a kind of a daring thing for you to do. So I'd like you to talk about uh, reinterpreting the Buddha's life through the kind of unique, utterly unique perspective that you bring to it. Well, you know, it's well known about the Buddha that he was raised in a um, uh, uh, utterly secure and protected environment. He was raised the way we try to raise our children, you, you know, like not exposing them to, to any allergens. Um, not expo- The Buddha wasn't exposed to old age, illness, or death uh, by his overprotective father. I think probably because the mother died when he was a week old. But uh, classically, it's because um, the father received a prophecy uh, after the Buddha was born, before his mother died, that he would either be a great worldly ruler, a great king, or he would be a great spiritual leader. And he desperately did not want his son to be the great spiritual leader. He wanted him to be a king. And so he tried to uh, uh, protect him from any uh, any window into any vision of anything that might push him in a spiritual direction, and uh, got him as far as his 29th year. Uh, those of us who still have children living with us until they're 29 can uh, can understand. Uh, he he got him to the age of 29 when classically the Buddha is taken out by his charioteer and he sees first an old person and then an ill person and then a corpse and he's never seen these things before. Uh, and then he uh, he realizes, oh my God, there's more to life than I've been led to believe. Uh, I better try to find the uh, the solution to this. And then he uh, leaves the palace, goes to the forest. Uh, the forest in those days is the way we imagine California and New York. It's like going to seek the New Age therapists of his time. He go that the forest is where the spiritual practitioners were. And um, in my view the defenses 
that the Buddha's father created for him were also the Buddha's defenses against feeling the loss that happened before he could know what the loss was. So that's a classic response to trauma, where we dissociate from what's too too great to bear, too overwhelming to bear. So in, in my view, the, the Buddha had to dissociate not only his mother's bliss, that was too much for her to bear, but also his own guilt, his own shame, his own rage at his mother's abandonment of him. So that when you start to look at what did the Buddha actually do in his search for enlightenment, because he had five years of, uh, of uh, doing spiritual practices before he discovered mindfulness, before he discovered that joy was an inherent part of his being, he first tried to shut off his mind completely. You know, he did what many people who are drawn to meditation today do. Uh, he tried to have an empty mind, a quiet mind, no thoughts, just rising to a totally sublime, subtle, peaceful place. And he became, you know, as expert as any guru of his time. In fact, it's said the gurus who taught him offered him a place. You know, he could, he could stay and take over their gurudom because he was so good at it. But he realized, as people do, that uh, that peaceful, quiet mind, um, eventually it goes away. You come back to your regular thinking mind and all the pain and all, everything you've pushed away comes flooding back when you leave the retreat. So he turned his back on those practices and then became a, um, an ascetic practitioner. So I say in the book that he became like a modern-day anorectic because uh, 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 anyone who's uh, been anorectic or tried to treat an anorectic patient knows how strong, uh, how defended, uh, how willful uh, someone who's starving, you know, in a 70-pound body, uh, refusing to take any nourishment, uh, uh, how strong they can be. And the Buddha actually enacted uh, uh, that entire thing. Um, he became the greatest ascetic practitioner. He ate only one grain of rice per day. He drank his own, his own urine. He was falling over on his face from being so weak. And it's at that moment that he actually had the only childhood memory that figures into the Buddhist story. He remembered himself as a boy sitting under a rose apple tree with his father plowing in the distance, and I think it's a kind of Winnicottian memory where the parent is present but not too present, and he experienced under the tree as a boy, he experienced himself filled with bliss, like his mother's bliss that she had when he was a baby. And he, he at the height of his ascetic practices, he remembers this feeling, and he pauses uh, maybe as only a Buddha or similar to Freud's self-analysis, you know, he pauses and wonders, why am I remembering this at this moment? And then he thinks to himself, huh, there must be a reason. I'm a little scared of this feeling. Why should I be scared of a joyful feeling? And then he thinks, maybe the enlightenment that I'm seeking is more in this direction than the one I was heading down. But I, if... Uh, if that's true, with a body this emaciated, there's no way I could sustain such a feeling. And at that moment in the legend, 
a, a young maiden appears holding a bowl of rice porridge and offers him nourishment. So it's like the breast, you know, being offered to the Buddha. And he takes the nourishment and then proceeds to the, um, to the Bodhi tree, uh, the famous Bodhi tree that he sits under and, and gets enlightened. But that childhood memory is thought to be the foundation of the middle path because it was in that moment that the Buddha stopped rejecting pleasure uh, and uh, uh, allowed that to be one component of the path to enlightenment. But it's not the only component, and that's where your book comes in. That's exactly right. So talk about the other component, which is the traumas that we solve, we experience every day, and how those traumas from Buddha's life figured in and how he learned to step back and, and see the two. Well, as the story goes, you know, uh, after the Buddha was enlightened, first he was reluctant to talk at all. He thought, no one is going to understand this. You know, so, and, and then it, it says, uh, that will be wearisome to me. That will be troublesome to me. It would, it's better if I just keep quiet. And then it was only, only when the greatest of the gods, Brahma, came to him and uh, on bended knee pleaded with him, uh, saying, you know, there are few people out there with just a little bit of dust in their eyes who will understand you. Why don't you look around and try to talk? And the Buddha said, okay. And then, uh, and then he didn't lead with suffering at first. He tried at first. The first person he came in contact with, he started, he started in right away with everything is bliss. You, you know, like you, you guys are missing it. And really look around like the universe is full of joy. Uh, everything is bliss, and the guy thought he was crazy, and uh, and you know walked on by. Uh, and it was only then that the Buddha decided. When he next he found five old disciples who had been doing ascetic practices with him, and those were the five he taught the four noble truths to. And the four noble truths uh, are the encapsulation of the Buddha's teachings, and they were also the first words after his failed attempt to talk about bliss. Uh, the first words that he spoke after his enlightenment to another person. Uh, and he led with suffering at that time. He, he didn't really say all life is suffering, as some people uh, think. He just said dukkha, which is, uh, which is usually translated as suffering. It actually means hard to face. He was saying there are things in life that are hard to face. Dukkha means hard to or difficult to face, cause face. Uh, so he said... It's very important from the beginning to face that which is hard to face. We must acknowledge suffering is another way to, uh, to translate that. And if we can acknowledge suffering, then we can start to see the source or the cause of much of our suffering. And that he elaborated in his second noble truth. He didn't say the cause of suffering is desire the way many people think he did. He said the cause of suffering is clinging or craving because we're clinging or craving to the way we wish things could be, not to the way things actually are. And that applies to the world, and it also applies to ourselves. We have a misperception, uh, a, um, a conceptual view of who we're supposed to be, and we're not the person that we think we should be. And that clinging, that conceit, gets in the way also, because then when things happen to us that uh, don't fit in with our image of how things are supposed to be or who we think we are, we, um, we're traumatized by that. 
I've been traumatized by not being uh, super handsome and ultra rich for many <laughs> I years. I didn't notice that you weren't super handsome. <laughs> One of the things I thought was very interesting in here was uh, Buddha's teachings on curiosity. And one of the things that you said is that we're still catching up with the the Buddha's teachings uh, scientifically. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a, there's a lot to be learned from the confluence of East and West, both from the the uh, psychodynamics as they uh, uh, come into conversation with Buddhism, as we spoke about before, and also the conversation that is well underway between the neuroscientists and the uh, the psychological and philosophical teachings of the Buddha. And they, they each uh, illuminate the other. Uh, for instance, uh, um, going back to the subject of trauma, uh, one of the leading neuroscientists of our time, a man named Joseph Ledoux, has a famous statement that emotional memory may be forever. And he studies a, a, a part of the brain called the amygdala, deep in the base of the brain, where emotional memory is stored. And uh, his point, emotional memory may be forever, is that even the early agonies the early traumas that we were talking about before that happen before language kicks in to help us understand what might be happening, the traces of those anxieties persist, you know, are wired into who, the people that we become. And so we have to make peace with that. You know, we have to make room for all of that that we couldn't control in our own past. And that's where, I, again, I used the Buddha's loss of his mother as a, as a metaphor for all of that. You you also talk about uh, the dreams of the Buddha, and yeah. you talk about your own dreams, and I made me think about how often in novels and in all forms of art, dreams are used as a literary tool, and I and it made me think. Well, he's using them as a literary tool here as well. So I'd like you to talk about using dreams in nonfiction. Well, it's always dangerous to use dreams because there's there's nothing more boring, really, than listening to another person's dream. Uh, even as a therapist, I have to really work when my patients start to tell me their dreams to really pay attention to their emotional experience as they're describing something because if I just listen to the story, that's one of the only times I find my mind wandering off. Um, so I was I was intrigued in reading the Buddhist literature to find that, in fact, the Buddha had five dreams in between his uh, uh, childhood memory and his enlightenment. And an old friend of mine, Danny Goleman, who wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence, he was a uh, graduate student teacher of mine when I was an undergraduate, and he had been in India uh, studying Buddhist thought uh, way back when, when I was still in college, and the uh, the British psychiatrist R.D. Lang was there with him. And R.D. Lang discovered those dreams also and said to my friend Danny, the Buddha had these dreams. Someone should do something with them. But, no, but nobody had. Um, so I came upon the dreams, and there are um, traditional explanations for the dreams, which, are, which say that they were prophetic, you know, that the Buddha dreamed his enlightenment before it happened, that he dreamed about uh, his followers of mendicants or monks before he had any, that he dreamed about the Dharma, about his teachings before he gave them. Um, but I looked at the dreams, and to me, they looked like dreams that my patients might have, where he was actually dreaming about the psychodynamic issues that he had to resolve 
before he could be enlightened. His first dream is of being uh, connected to the universe the way, uh, the way Freud talked about a baby being connected to the mother. And his second dream is about uh, vines growing out of his navel that connect him to the sky. You know, there couldn't be a more profound image of the mother-child bond. So I tried to do something with those dreams. And at the same time, I had just come off a, another silent retreat, which I had gone into hoping for some of that inner peace that Buddhism promises. But what I found instead was that I kept waking up in the middle of the night with uh, some of the more violent and uh, anxiety-filled dreams that, uh, that I remembered having. Uh, usually I, I forget my dreams, but um, in the silence of the retreat, I was remembering them all quite vividly. So I tried to use my own dreams there to make that point that we're all carrying a lot of stuff in our unconscious, that um, we uh, can be uh, illuminated by, uh, that we know ourselves less well than we pretend, and that um, uh, admitting that is actually liberating. You have so many great quotes in this book. I mean, I could just go through and underline about every third sentence uh, in terms of you know, kind of aphoristic quotes like uh, the picture we present to ourselves of who we think we ought to be obscures who we really are. Or another time where you say the ego can trump its own goals. And I'd like you to talk about crafting these kind of aphorisms, these really great things that, you know, people are going to highlight or underline in their texts and, you know, putting them in in terms of the literary and prose flow so that there's not too many, but there's just enough. Well, it took me a long time to even really think of myself as a writer. Um, you know, most of what I do is to see patients, and I've done all my writing just one day a week. Um, my my wife is a sculptor, and she has a studio, and so uh, and she has a big studio practice. So I needed to find something to do when she was in the studio, which was actually how I started writing. Um, and in, in this book, which I wrote really over a period of seven years, I would spend this one day a week working on, you know, one little piece, trying to get from the beginning of a thought, you know, to the end of the paragraph. And there was, there's something in working and reworking. Uh, there's, there's a way that I at least get swept up in the prose uh, so that uh, I, I needed to have a certain kind of rhythm and a certain kind of flow um, for me to be able to put it down. Um, so I would spend, you know, most of a day um, re writing, reading it over, bending it, tweaking it, uh, massaging it is probably the, the best word, until it until it um, left the impression that I was uh, that I had discovered I wanted to uh, I, I wanted it to have. It's not like I knew what I wanted it to be before I started writing. There's a process of discovery that happens actually in the writing, but uh, I couldn't leave it alone if uh, until it uh, left me alone. It, it this kind of goes with your vision of Buddhism, where you say that. It's art and science. 
Yeah, well, the the um, it's presented a lot these days as an inner science. You know that that was the the Dalai Lama's contribution uh, was to talk about the science of mind and to be interested himself in talking to scientists. Um, but for me, I learned about Buddhism at the same time that the the whole cultural world uh, opened itself to me. I, I learned about it uh, when I was in college at Naropa Institute in Boulder in the mid-70s at a kind of Buddhist summer camp that was filled with artists and writers as well as meditation teachers, you know. So Allen Ginsberg was there and John Cage was there, people like that. Wow. And, um, and I had the experience, you, you know, I came from... I, a uh, scientific background. My father was a uh, an academic physician, and I was always uh, good in the math and science and so on. The the art side of things was more mysterious to me. And if I only approached meditation as a science, I found that I was missing something. You know, uh, it wasn't until I laid back in myself a little bit, maybe analogous uh, to how I was was talking about the writing. It was only when I learned how to leave myself alone in the middle of the meditation, the way I think an artist in their studio has to learn how to leave themselves alone in order to get to uh, um, their own creative process, um, that meditation started to open itself up to me. Uh, and I think that's part of my affection for the work of Winnicott, because uh, one of the things that Winnicott likes to talk about is where does creative expression reside? Where does it come from? And he likes to tie it back, as we were talking, to the experience of the infant feeling safe enough to play, to explore his or her own mind. And uh, that's what meditation is, and that's what writing is, and that's what therapy is, and that's what making art or music is. You know, one of the things I found really interesting in this book is I didn't expect in a book about that was dealing with Buddhism and therapy and the life of the Buddha to find echoes of Nietzsche. Uh-huh. But, but they're really there. Really? I'm, Are they? I don't yeah. know Nietzsche. Well, uh, I mean, his most famous saying, mm. you say, trauma, if it doesn't destroy us, wakes us both up to our own relationship capabilities and to the suffering of others. And that's not so far from what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Huh. <laughs> and there, you have a couple of uh-huh. different visions of this, of trauma as, um, un, by understanding trauma, by understanding that which threatens us, and understanding it from a distance, perceiving it in that holding room, mm-hmm. that we grow, we gain strength from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I do believe that. One of the things that I think is also uh, really fascinating in this book is you talk about implicit memory, and mm-hmm. I'd like you to describe what implicit memory is and why it's important. Well, I actually use the uh, uh, implicit in, in, implicit memory and then implicit relational knowing. I, I go back and forth between those two concepts. Both of them are difficult concepts. Um, but uh, to to come to your question, implicit memory is where traumatic memories are stored. So Im- implicit memory is that which is not explicit. In, in other words, uh, something that's explicit, we can put language on, we can understand with our thinking minds. Something that's implicit goes straight into us, um, and it's held there w- in a way that we don't have to think about it. So 
um, when you're learning to ride a bicycle, at first you have to learn like how to get on the bicycle and balance yourself and you know how to do it basically step by step. But at a certain point, knowing how to ride a bicycle becomes implicit. And so it's that knowledge is held in our implicit memory. Similarly, you know, how we make friends. You know, like autistic kids uh, have trouble with that, but um, most people learn implicitly how to make friends. They, you know, how to make eye contact, how to look away, all that nonverbal communication, all of that's held in implicit memory. Now, the trauma theorists uh, suggest that when some acute traumatic event happens, it goes straight into implicit memory. You, you know, we don't, it's not processed at all. It just goes boom. And then it's, it's in a sense, stuck there, except for when um, uh, v- various events trigger it and it comes pouring out. So um, there, there's a way that we're carrying some of our most difficult experiences, as well as our social learning and so on, in, in our implicit memories. And I, I, the, the concept of implicit knowing. Yeah. This is also really interesting to me. I, I just spoke with a, a fellow who, wrote a novel about a software genius, and in the novel, the character who I highly related to, he would analyze everything and every relationship so he could never really have a natural relationship with anybody. There are a couple of points in the book where you actually see that happening. And I think that's what you're talking about here in this book. Yes. Well, this, this idea then of implicit relational knowing is basically Winnicott and neuroscience coming together, saying that a, a mother, for example, knows already instinctually, implicitly, how to relate to her baby. She doesn't have to think about it. She doesn't need the experts telling her how to do it. It's right there. And the baby also, from birth, knows implicitly how to relate to the mother, that there's a relational thing happening between the two people. One of, one of Winnicott's most famous statements was that there was, there's no such thing as a baby. There's only a baby and a, and a mother or a baby and a caregiver. There's only a couple. So we, we're wired, we're hardwired to relate to each other. And we know how to do that implicitly. So one of the things that Buddha's meditations develop is or make use of is this hardwired, implicit, relational knowing, which we somehow use on ourselves in meditation. We're both subject and object to ourselves in meditation, and we um, can deploy that kind of implicit awareness without any intervention of conceptual thought. We can deploy that on our own experience and be the better for it. And that's what I think the 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 real uh, power of this book is that it gives us a way to know ourselves and to look at the things that happen to us that seem senseless and reasonless. And God knows there's plenty of those, but to bring that into ourselves in a manner that is we, as you say, we can grow from pain. Well, I, I was hoping in the book, through the actual writing, to convey a sense of that kind of knowing, the simple, liberating knowing 
that both the Buddha and the psychoanalytic tradition after Freud, that both of them make use of. And I, and I was hoping that somehow by writing, by braiding together all of these themes, including my own experience, that I could convey the possibility um, of this for people. And I think you've succeeded admirably. I've been speaking with Mark Epstein. His new book is The Trauma of Everyday Life. Thank you for joining me, Mark. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.